Anne Pellegrini, and on behalf of the Center for the Study of Gender and Sexuality, I'm delighted to welcome you to tonight's forum after Proposition 8, The Future of Marriage Politics. The long list of co-sponsors for tonight's event is itself a kind of argument for polyamory, or at least for partnering in the plural. And I want to acknowledge the following co-sponsors at MIU and beyond. The American Studies Program, Gender and Sexuality Studies Program, Department of Social and Cultural Analysis, the Religious Studies Program, and Department of Performance Studies. I also want to acknowledge The Nation Magazine and the Barnard Center for Research on Women. A special thanks are due to Elisa Burke of the Department of Social and Cultural Analysis and Robert Campbell at the Center for the Study of Gender and Sexuality for all their work tracking and putting in place the details for tonight's forum. And I'd be remiss if I didn't invite you to grab, just warm off the presses, the CSGS Spring Calendar of Events. There are tables at both sides of the room. If you're not on our, mail, on our email list, I'd encourage you also to sign up for that. And I know we're all economizing in these difficult budgetary times, and Valentine's Day is coming up. These are a phenomenal gift for that special someone, or heck, someones. Believe me, you'll be thanked. Now, we wouldn't be here at all but for the political imagination and visionary genius of Lisa Dugan and Richard Kim, who conceptualized and organized this discussion. In their written work, both joint and solo, their teachings and public lectures, they've pushed to expand the frame of what counts as GLBTQ politics, connecting issues of sexual justice to broader issues of social and economic justice. I know how much I have learned from them and continue to learn from their proddings, and I'm excited about the conversation they're staging here tonight for us and with us. Now, I'm gonna leave it to Lisa to introduce her co-convener, Richard Kim, and the two panelists, but a few words about Lisa Dugan. She is professor of social and cultural analysis here at NYU and the author of Sapphic Slashers, Sex, Violence, and American Modernity. It's a how-to book. <laughs> the Twilight of Equality, Neoliberalism, Cultural Politics, and the Attack on Democracy. Co-author with Not Nan Hunter <laughs> of Sex Wars, Sexual Descent, and Political Culture. Could go both ways in the self-help or how-to frontier, right? Um, and co-editor with Lauren Berlant of Armonica Ourselves, The Clinton Affair, and National Interests. She's also a frequent contributor to The Nation magazine, and with Joseph DeFilippis, Monroe France, and Richard Kim, is co-editing a collection of essays anchored in the work of the New York-based progressive, multiracial, multi-class, nonprofit organization, Queers for Economic Justice. The title of their forthcoming anthology is New Queer Agenda, a practical guide for how to turn the gay rights movement into a progressive fight for social justice and succeed. Now that's change we can all believe in. And I'm tickled pink, a very manly pink, I hasten to add, to introduce my cherished friend and colleague, Lisa Dugan. Well, I in turn would like to thank Anne Pellegrini, Robert Campbell, and Elisa Burke for all kinds of support in um, pulling this panel together. Um, and I'm just really delighted tonight to have these three people speaking on this issue at uh, such a, a, a crucial moment in which way um, uh, progressive queer politics are gonna go now in the wake of Proposition 8. I think it's a really crucial moment for us to think about what comes next, and I think we have three people here who can uh, really push us in some very interesting directions. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna introduce people in the order that they're speaking. Uh, first will be uh, the ferocious, the notorious Richard Kim. Um, 
He's an associate editor at The Nation, um, where he writes both articles and he's a blogger for The Notion at The Nation, um, and has written on a wide variety of political and cultural issues. I have just sort of a list of some of his titles, Waiting for the Barbarians, The Culture War Disarmed, one of my favorites, Your Love Song to Mike Gravel, um, uh, People versus AIDS, Pop Torture, Witnesses to an Execution, Beyond Gay Marriage, uh, which we co-authored, um, and The L Word, Act Up Goes Glover, Global, Andrew Sullivan, Overexposed, and lot, a lot more. <laughs> He's also um, ABD in American Studies at NYU, and is my co-editor, as Anne mentioned, on uh, the Queers for Economic Justice anthology that we hope to finish very soon, titled um, A New Queer Agenda. Um, our second speaker will be, Dan Ho will be Dan Hosang, who I met when I was at a conference in, at UC Santa Barbara, um, who gave a presentation based on his forthcoming book, which is Racial Propositions, Genteel Apartheid in Post-War California, and I was really blown away by um, the cogency and, um, and the, the kind of sharp intervention that this book is going to be. Um, it examines uh, the role of California ballot measures in the production of racial identity and power in the post-World War II era, looking at a time when California voters passed ballot initiatives banning public services for undocumented immigrants, repealing public affirmative action programs, outlawing bilingual education, and toughening criminal sentencing uh, laws for juveniles and adults. So I, um, I knew he was bound to have thought about Proposition 8 in relation to these other California ballot initiatives. And lo and behold, he had. <laughs> so he's here to talk about Proposition 8 in relation to the, this history of ballot initiatives in, um, in California. He's an assistant professor of ethnic studies and political science at the University of Oregon. He received his PhD in American Studies and Ethnicity from the University of Southern California in 2007. His dissertation, which is the basis for the book, won a whole long list of prizes, the Gabriel Prize from American Studies Association, the Jackson Prize from the uh, American Historical Association, the Best Dissertation Award from the Racial and Ethnic Public section, Politics Section of the American Political Science Association. Wow, political science. That's a, that's a hard nut to crack um, for anyone doing well, I won't say another word. Um, <laughs> his book manuscript is under contract with the University of California Press um, in the American Crossroads series. And prior to graduate school, and this I think really shows in the work that he does, Dan worked for 10 years as a community and union organizer based in Oakland, California. So our third speaker is Catherine Frankie. She's a professor of law and also the director of the program in gender and sexuality law at Columbia University. Um, and she is the author of a very long list of uh, widely cited articles that have uh, changed the conversation on gender and sexuality in the law. Um, among them are articles on the politics of same-sex marriage, um, the domesticated liberty of Lawrence v. Texas, which is a critical analysis of the uh, sodomy case in Texas, um, sexual tensions of post-empire, which addresses in part the Cairo 52 and the Egyptian court system, um, uh, longing for loving on loving versus Virginia, um, theorizing yes, an essay on feminism, law, and desire, one of my favorites, um, and uh, 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 putting sex to work. She's at work on a book um, 
and the title of it is here, Emancipation Approximation. Um, it's a book-length treatment of the precarious state of freed people after military emancipation, not enslaved, not free, rather contained in a regulated space that she calls free dumb, <laughs> whose contours were largely defined by the law. So um, I think we have a panel that is equipped here to talk about um, LGBT and queer politics in relation to gender, sexuality, and uh, class issues, and in, 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 in broader kinds of frames to help us think about what the stakes are for us now at this really major turning point in terms of what's going to happen. So, Richard. Oh, Lisa, you're so much taller than me. I need to I feel emasculated. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I um, covered Prop 8 um, at the nation from afar, and then I spent the week before the election out in California um, doing some reporting, mostly going to anti-gay uh, pro-Prop 8 rallies, um, including um, one, in one in LA where there were about two or 3,000 uh, mostly Chinese Americans um, and their children uh, endorsing Prop 8, and then a mega rally about, of about 15,000 in San Diego organized by Lou Engel called The Call. Um, so I, I could talk a little bit about that, but what I, what I wanted to do as a, as a setup to the rest of the panel, though, is to, to really just do a very elementary breakdown of what was at stake in Prop 8. Um, because there's been so much um, rhetoric thrown about that it's hard to sort of, um, even if you're following it, disentangle you know, what is, um, sort of propaganda from both sides and what, is, what was really actually at stake um, in the passage of, of Prop 8. Um, and you know, the gay side, for example, um, claimed that you know, their very humanity is at stake, that they would no longer, I literally heard this argument, they would cease to be full human beings um, if Prop 8 uh, were to pass, which is a sort of interesting notion um, how that would exactly happen. Um, and then you know, on the other side, the right wing really um, set forth the idea that, that you know, the, the very future of heterosexual marriage Right, was at stake in this, that um, heterosexual marriage would collapse, that um, the very foundation of the rule of law would collapse. Um, at the event I went to in San Diego, it concluded with a call um, to Christian martyrdom in the defense of marriage. Um, this was a scary moment. And you could, you could only imagine if, let's say, a Muslim had said, uh, you know, called for martyrdom in the defense of marriage, um, how quickly uh, the CIA and FBI would be there. Um, but no, no such, no such uh, recriminations were happening in San Diego. Um, so, um, you know, I'm just going to do a little background on what was the law already in California um, when Prop 8 came through. And this is, this is just the actual 14-word text of Prop 8. It was only a 14-word, very elegant um, amendment. Um, so um, California has um, a domestic partnership statute. Um, and it began in 1999 um, when California state legislators passed domestic partnership registry. And it only included at that, at that time hospital visitation rights and health insurance coverage. Um, this was significant because it was the first time that a state had actually passed a domestic partnership law um, on its own, right, without court order. So Hawaii had passed a sort of civil union bill in 1997, but that was because the court had ordered it to do so. Um, so California was the first time that the legislature de democratically put forward an expansion of same-sex um, couple rights. Um, and interestingly, the original bill, as proposed by Carol Migden, who is a lesbian uh, state assemblywoman from uh, San Francisco, um, covered all adult couples, right? 
um, in, in, including heterosexuals, right? Um, that was actually scaled back at the request of Governor Gray Davis um, and other Democratic leaders. So that it only applied to same-sex couples and opposite-sex couples where both members were over 62. Um, and, and that has to do with um, seniors being disproportionately unmarried but, but cohabitating, right? Um, so, uh, you know, the, the one big difference, right, between the marriage laws and the, and the domestic partnership laws in California are that the, the domestic partnership laws actually require cohabitation, um, which the marriage laws do not in California, um, which is an interesting uh, distinction. So gradually throughout the early 2000s, um, domestic partnerships expanded, right? So in 2001, the California state legislature adds 18 other rights to domestic partnership registry, including things like disability benefits, um, standing to sue on behalf of your um, partner, sick leave, um, step-parent adoption, um, inheritance without a will, um, and a limited range of, of tax rights. And that's, that's the first big expansion in 2001 um, of what is included in the domestic partnership bill. Um, it also relaxed the opposite sex um, age requirement so that only one partner had to be over 62. Um, so, you know, all the May-December um, hetero uh, marriages could, could be actually be domestic partners. Um, so in 2003, um, something actually pretty radical happens, which is that the legislature passes and, and Governor Davis signs, this is right before he's about to be kicked out in a recall um, election, um, a, a bill that called the California Domestic Partner uh, Rights and Responsibilities Act. And this sort of turns on the head the legislative strategy that had been pursued. Um, instead of enumerating the individual rights that domestic partners would have, it actually says that all the rights of marriage that California can give are presumed to be included in domestic partners. Um, and this is clarified over the next few years so that by 2008, um, when we see this marriage fight, um, California domestic partnerships are basically equivalent um, to marriage in terms of what the state law can give you, right? So it doesn't include any of the federal marriage rights, which no state can give. Um, and these domestic partnerships are not obviously transportable to other states that don't have a domestic partnership, civil union, or, or gay marriage on the, on the books. So I'm not, I'm not going to say that there are no differences between um, domestic partnerships and marriage, but in terms of state, California state law and what the state can provide you, um, these are essentially identical um, in 2008. Um, uh, one thing where it's not identical is that it's much easier to get a domestic partnership. Um, you need 10 bucks um, and a notarized statement. Um, and uh, unlike California marriages, you don't need to have the ceremony um, solemnized in a religious or civil act, right? You just go to the, uh, you just file the paperwork. Um, and, um, you know, it, it does require um, a messy divorce. In fact, most of the divorce laws that apply to marriage apply to California domestic partnerships. Um, and consistently, including back in the mid-90s, um, domestic partnerships um, have about a two-thirds to three-quarter approval rating amongst the public. Um, they have never, since polling began on it, they have never been um, supported by anything less than a supermajority of California voters, right? Um, so while this is happening, while this expansion to domestic partnerships registry is happening, there's also all this marriage politics going on in California. So in 1977, the legislature passes a law defining marriage as, quote, a personal relation uh, arising out of a civil contract between a man and a woman. Um, and that is, on the, is in the civil code, it's on the books. Um, in 2000, voters passed Prop 22 by a 61 to 39% margin. Um, it's California's DOMA championed by Pete Knight, and it says only marriage between a man and a woman is valid or recognized in California, which is the identical wording of uh, Prop 8, right? Um, and, you know, one thing to note about the 61-39 margin is that polling 
up to that election day in 2000 had consistently said that Prop 22 would pass, but by much smaller margins, right? Which actually mimicked what happened uh, this November, right? Where, where the polling said that it was going to uh, tip maybe in the favor of the no on eight campaign. Um, but they were quite surprised to find that actually more voters supported the anti-gay initiative. Um, in February 2004, Gavin Newsom, the mayor of San Francisco, um, very handsome, toothy guy who's now going to run for governor um, of California, um, orders county clerks to marry same-sex couples, right? And I'm sure you saw this on TV, all the same-sex couples lining up at City Hall to get married. Um, this creates the, the legal groundwork for all these couples to file suit in California. Um, interestingly, in 2005 and in 2007, the California legislature passes a bill legalizing gay marriage, right? And it passes actually by wide majorities in both the Assembly and the Senate. It has some very limited bipartisan support, and Governor Schwarzenegger vetoes both those bills, right? Um, and, and those bills are actually written on, on getting rid of the gender discrimination, right, that, the, that Prop 22 and, and the uh, 1970 Assembly law uh, enacts. Um, so, you know, all these legal challenges are consolidated in what was called the in-ray marriage cases um, from 2004 onward. Um, and in May 15, 2008, uh, the California Supreme Court ruled 4-3. Um, the decision uh, was written by a Republican uh, justice um, and supported by the majority, I think, of the Republican court appointees to the Supreme Court. Um, and it, it, it said a couple things, and I've sort of parsed out the sort of important elements. Um, one, it, it said that under the California State Constitution, the right to marry properly um, I love that word, the right to marry properly versus an ersatz, Britney Spears-like marriage, um, uh, encompasses the basic substantive legal rights and attributes that are integral to an individual's liberty and personal autonomy and that they can't be invalidated by a legislative or initiative act. Right? Um, for the first time, uh, a, a Supreme Court, state Supreme Court in a marriage case applies strict scrutiny to sexual orientation. Right? And it suggests that... Um, strict scrutiny would apply to all laws, not just the marriage laws, but all laws that discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation. So the ramifications of that you know, haven't sort of been felt yet, and, and maybe Catherine or someone else can talk more about what that might mean. Um, and it also says, and this is language picked up um, from the gay side legal brief, um, that marriage is a basic civil or human right of all people, right, and that it confers dignity and respect onto people. Um, this is actually a fairly radical legal move. Um, and, and we could talk about that a, a bit later, but it, 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 it's really um, what has been accomplished is to assert marriage as a basic fundamental human and legal right, right? Um, so um, this all boils over into Prop 8, and I'm just going to give you a quick schematic of the money. Um, $85 million was spent in total. Um, it's the most expensive ballot measure by far in history. Um, it's the most expensive electoral contest in 2008, aside from the presidency itself, right? Um, so this was the most expensive election right, that happened, aside from Barack Obama and John McCain. And um, if you were on the ground in California, um, you really saw like, the super saturation of the lawn ads, the TV commercials. Um, when I was there, I could barely tell that there was actually a presidential race happening. Um, you know, people were like, I was like, what are you going to vote for in the election? And they were like, no on eight. And I was like, no, I met McCain or, or Obama. And, and you know, it, just, it, it was almost as if the presidential race were happening in another country. right? Um, and, and this was really the sort of big prize for both Democrats and Republicans because California is a, was a sort of foregone conclusion that it would go to Obama. And for the right wing in California, they had no governor's race. They had, um, you know, McCain was not an attractive uh, presidential candidate to many in the Christian right. Um, and uh, there were no really high profile seats up, no senator seats, no high, high profile ups, uh, uh, 
at stake congressional seats, really. So this was really their election, right? Um, uh, um, it's the most expensive campaign also ever waged by the gay movement and or the Christian right, right? So this was, this was big. Um, the Yes on 8 side raised and spent about $40 million, right? Including 33 donations from groups or individuals over 100,000. Um, and, and I've just listed some of the bigger ones, 1.5 million from the National Organization for Marriage, um, 1.4 million from this uh, bajillionaire, Howard Amundsen, um, 1.1 million from the Knights of Columbus, um, which is a Catholic fraternity, um, about 720 or so thousand for Focus on the Family, um, almost half a million from the Conservative Women of America, right? Um, and the data isn't quite in yet um, on, on the impact of the Mormon church, and you know they were sort of blamed right, for this, and Lisa can talk about maybe the impact in Utah. But it is possible that as much as half of all individual donations over $1,000 came from individual Mormons. Um, but it's, it's sort of difficult to tell who's a Mormon and who's not a Mormon going through the California um, Secretary of State's website. Um, the no on eight side raised and spent about $45 million, right? And you have to remember all this money was raised and spent um, in an incredibly narrow window of time, basically from June to November, right? Um, 32 million of that 45 million was spent on TV advertising. Um, California is a big state with multiple media markets, right? And more than 25 million, right? So the majority of the money spent and raised by the gay side um, went to one firm alone, Marin Carson, um, which uh, produced and disseminated the TV ads, right? Um, and, you know, Marin Carson is basically a company um, which represents like the California Golf Association and like restaurants and um, Hewitt Packard, right? So they, they're actually not a political firm, right? So that's something that um, now people are questioning, right, about the decision to hire them, as well as the decision to hire um, Steve Smith of the Dewey Square Group, um, who was a, a sort of Democratic uh, Clintonite um, operative. Um, so just to really get at what was at stake, because California domestic partnerships granted every right of marriage that a state can give, only the application of the term marriage was actually at stake in 2008, right? So there were no substantive or legal rights given or taken away, right, by the passage of Prop 8, right? Um, the Yes on 8 campaign emphasized that, there, that, you know, th that truth, actually, that they were not taking away um, rights from gay and lesbian people. They didn't want to take away rights, and you can question whether they actually want to take away rights or not, because they've consistently opposed the California State Domestic Partnership Statute every time it's come up and actually filed multiple lawsuits against it. So there's a little bit of a lie there, but in terms of what Prop 8 would do, they were actually right, right? It would not take away material and, and legal rights granted by domestic partnerships to, to California's same-sex couple. Um, and their central themes are really about children, and I'll show you an ad in a second. Um, of course, the activist judges, Kennard, um, and rogue officials. And, and one of the you know, really hugely effective ads they had was of Gavin Newsom saying, um, you know, gay marriage is going to happen whether you like it or not. Um, so that, that was, that was the, one of the first big hits um, of the no on, uh, of the Yes on 8 campaign. Um, the No on 8 campaign, you know, tread on themes very vague about fairness, equality, and opposition to discrimination. Don't hate, right, was one of the big slogans that they um, passed around. And, um, you know, one thing I want to sort of maybe leave you with here is that there's a, sort of an essential contradiction, right, that the No on 8 side ran into, right? So even though their legal filings emphasize dignity and respect, i.e. social acceptance, right, conferred by the state um, in recognizing marriage, um, their campaign actually made a strategic decision based on focus grouping that they actually did in Texas, weird, um, um, and advice from high-paid consultants not to put any gay people in their ads, right? 
Um, and I have heard people tell me, for example, that when they went to do phone banking, they were told not to mention that they were gay, not to mention that they had a partner, um, not to actually talk about the social acceptance granted to them via marriage, right? So, you know, um, what, what I like to say about all this is, is that, you know, I feel as if when I was there, I was watching two socially conservative campaigns at work, right? Neither of which wanted to admit they were socially conservative, right? Um, so there was a kind of fuzziness to the no on eights campaign side about right, discrimination. Um, what did that exactly mean? Right? What is marriage for? Um, these were things they largely ducked. And I think one of the other more comical contradictions they ran into is they kept saying this was a sort of sub-theme, this libertarian framing, which actually appears in the Secretary of State's file. Um, it's one of their main legal arguments against eight. Um, we don't need Prop 8 because we don't want more government in our lives. Um, which is exactly what actually gay marriage does, right? Um, and what marriage does generally, right? So, um, you know, there, there was a kind of muddled message there. I could also talk about later about the strategies they pursued in going after minority voters, why I think that was a failure, um, the, the way the money was spent on consultants, et cetera. But um, I do want to show you just two ads to illustrate my point. And one is the infamous princess ad, and this was. Um, this was the ad that really gained a lot of traction for the, for the yes, on the side. So essentially, I'll just narrate this. Like, this little girl comes in, and, and her mom's like, what did you learn in school today? And she said, I read about a prince can marry a prince. Um, and I'm a princess, and I could marry a princess, right? Um, so, the, so the claim there was that you know, prop a, a gay marriage in California would, would force school teachers right, to teach um, social acceptance of gay couples, right? Um, and the, the no on eight side actually countered saying um, people are, can opt out of lessons they give in schools, et cetera, right? Um, they got the teachers union, um, the various state officials involved in education to, to sort of counter this claim. Um, but in a sense, um, this goes to what the symbolic value of what was actually at stake, because it is true, actually, that Prop 8, uh, that, that keeping gay marriage legalized in California would change how children were taught marriage, right? it would change the social norms. In fact, that's all it would change, right? Only that was at stake. Um, so, so when the right counters with this, and the gay side's trying to avoid the essential symbolic and only symbolic nature of its campaign, um, it's caught in this contradiction that it actually can't counter this ad except through kind of legalisms about opting out and um, parental consent forms and paperwork, right? Um, so I want to also play the discrimination ad that um, the other team used. This is this is the gay side. This is this is the ad they had countering. That discrimination was legal in California. Japanese Americans were confined in internment camps. Armenians couldn't buy a house in the Central Valley. Latinos and African Americans were told who they could and could not marry. It was a sorry time in our history. Today, the sponsors of Prop 8 want to eliminate fundamental rights. We have an obligation to pass along to our children a more tolerant, more decent society. Vote no on Prop 8. It's unfair and it's wrong. So any idea who the narrator is? Samuel L. Jackson, right? Um, so so this, was, this was the ad that they sort of put together in the last weeks of the campaign. Um, you know, and some of it, sometimes it is credited with sort of moving the polls a, a little bit. Um, it, it is sort of also emblematic of their decision mostly to use celebrities, right, and elected, heterosexual elected officials as the main spokespeople, right, for the no on eight. Team, um, um, as well as get that trying to link the issue of the value of marriage, right, um, to past instances of discrimination, um, most of which, as you know in the ad, actually had material 
legal ramifications for people, right? Um, it seems like at least some voters didn't buy that. Um, I'll leave you with that, and we can turn it over to Dan. Hi, everybody. Um, good evening. I uh, first want to um, thank uh, the center, Lisa. Um, I'm really, really grateful to be here and to be engaged in this discussion. Um, I, I thought I would give a, I mean, I realize I'm on a panel, and I don't know if you can give a panel a, a title, but I, I decided to give my little talk a title um, to kind of follow up on what Richard uh, was talking about. Uh, it's not just about marriage. And I'm going to try to do three uh, basic things tonight. I'm going to talk a little bit about this history of race on the California ballot um, and to think in a kind of open way about what some of the, the connections are between Prop 8 and this longer legacy. I'll then actually talk a little bit more about Prop 8 itself. So there'll be some detour, but I will get back to Prop 8, I promise. And then I'm going to conclude with some very quick thoughts about kind of the question that looms before us about what is to be done, uh, confessing completely that every time I, I thought I had something to really put on the table, I realized I had read it in something that Lisa, Catherine, or Richard had already written. Um, <laughs> So there was that moment when I thought it was my idea, but then uh, I, I locate it in their writing. So, but I, I'm going to put some things out for us to think about as well. Um, okay, so let's start. The, the paradox, right, that came out on election day went something like this. We had on the one hand the Obama election in California, 61% to Obama. Oh, I'm afraid that I, there's a chance some of these graphics got to, to McCain's 39%, right? Liberal, paradigmatic blue California goes solidly for Obama. So the question then became, how are we to explain yes on eight, the attack on same-sex marriage, garnering a majority of the electorate? And what did this say about tolerance, right? And, and the kind of contradiction of the paradox of tolerance. And what I want to suggest is, um, rather than regarding it as an exception, there's a much broader history that I think we can learn from. So in the 1990s, and some people remember this was kind of headline-grabbing attention, this actually marked my, somewhat of my career as a, an organizer in California, my inauspicious career. Um, uh, California voters, again, solidly Democratic, confronted initiatives to uh, a three-strike senior out to expand prisons, really the largest prison-building project in the history of the country a measure that made uh, violations of immigration law grounds to deny all health, education, and social services and required state officials to report anyone suspected of such violations, uh, a, a law overturning all public affirmative action programs, a measure banning all public bilingual education programs in the state, a measure uh, expanding juvenile sentencing, including sentencing youth as young as 16 into adult facilities, and of course, Proposition 22, the definition of marriage. In solidly democratic blue California, all pass, and they pass by large margins. And, and I can say I worked on all of them, and that's why I'm no longer an organizer. Um, and so for me, part of, I mean, after thinking about this was kind of, well, how do we explain this? Is this the kind of absence of tolerance or is there something else to think about this contradiction? How do they both happen at the same time? And so in my own work, I began looking at this kind of longer history um, and, and found out, in fact, that there are precedences. So in 1946, right after the end of the war, um, 
this is a time in California when if you open the Help Wanted ads, you would see race, gender, and religious-specific ads. You would say, no uh, Jews apply to many jobs, uh, Mexicans only, whites only for jobs, Gentiles only as well. So early civil rights advocates put initiative on the ballot, today kind of standard fair employment language banning such practices, and also banning segregated unions. In 1964, realtors, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about this, put a measure on the ballot to actually make discrimination a constitutionally protected practice, to make housing discrimination protected in the Constitution. In 1972 and 79, um, advocates put on measures uh, preventing the court from desegregating California schools. In the early 60s, civil rights advocates would point out California had more black students in segregated classroom uh, Los Angeles did than the entire state of Arkansas. And in 1984 and 1986, measures to remove um, uh, or take stands against both bilingual ballots and to declare English the official language of the state. All of these also pass by wide margins. You have to remember the 46 is actually the first and last time that civil rights groups try to put a measure on the ballot and it fails. So part of what I want to do then is try to link some of this history with what we confronted in Prop 8, and I want to do it through Prop uh, 14, the housing one in 1964, and to ask you to think with me about these parallels. So the paradox of Prop 14. They're actually remarkable. I mean, th this is a huge national election where California goes for Johnson by 59%. This is after he had signed the Civil Rights Act, Polls suggest California voters, eight out of 10, are in favor. Do you, do you support civil rights? Eight out of 10 say yes. Busloads of people are going down to the South. It regards itself as kind of the forefront of human progress and possibility and development. At the same time, they're confronted with a measure that I su suggest is put on by the realtors that makes racial discrimination in housing and religious a constitutionally protected practice. And it passes by 65% of the vote. So, and, and, and I'll talk all about some of these kind of parallels here. So how do we kind of untangle this? What I want to suggest is that the lack of tolerance was not the problem. The problem was indeed tolerance and trying to build political projects around tolerance. Okay, so let me just say something a little bit about what Prop 14 was. Just to set the stage, and I'll talk a little bit more about this, in the early 1960s, a kind of growing multiracial movement had put in place to really challenge some of these long-standing practices of residential apartheid in California. They culminate in what is today a standard um, anti-discrimination uh, language and housing, a Fair Housing Act, very, very tepid, which means if you feel you've disc been discriminated against, you assume the burden of filing a complaint, going to a hearing, and the best redress you can get is a chance to rent or buy an apartment again. Very, very modest language. It passes in 1963, similar to the kind of uh, recent uh, court's ruling. There's no large uproar. But the realtors, and I'll talk about their role in this in a second, quickly mobilized to put an, an initiative on the ballot. And its language is important, so I'll just quote from it quickly. The state shall not deny, limit, or abridge the right of any person who is willing or desires to sell, lease, or rent any part of his property unless he in his absolute discretion chooses. So it became about the rights, not of the home seeker, but of the, of the property owner. All right, so let me just say a little bit about, a little bit of a detour, but about kind of racial subordination in housing in California. 
there's a long and largely kind of unexplored history of the use of racially restrictive covenants. These are agreements written into property deeds that prevent property owners from selling on the basis of race. And the interesting thing about them is they're actually agreements not to sell to the highest um, um, buyer, right? Because if the highest buyer were not that, you wouldn't, it wouldn't be a question. It's only if the highest buyer is, in this case, a person of color, that you have an agreement written into the house not to sell to them. And large quantities of California's housing stock are covered by these agreements well past World War II. At some point, they estimate LA has 75% of its housing are covered by these restrictive covenants. Okay? And I want to talk a little bit now about how they're enforced. They're promoted always by realtors who imagine that just like larger square footage and a new kitchen is attractive to a house, so too are um, kind of uh, ideas about uh, race and property. So this is just a, a quick excerpt from the, their statewide real estate magazine in 1940, uh, a, a, an LA realty group promoting the very energetic work of their race restrictions committee. Um, and what a wonderful piece of work they're doing in the community to circulate these um, 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 covenants. Glendale, which is an incorporated city just north of LA, even in 1949, is proudly proclaiming itself a 100% Caucasian race community, uh, advertising it to other realtors and home buyers. It's always reinforced by the government. Of course, we know this long history of, of the federal government in the 1930s sending out surveyors to survey the racial makeups of cities all over the country, giving them ratings, and then ensuring that New Deal federal loans go to uh, homogenous and white-only communities encouraging people to move out of uh, even um, um, mixed communities. And it's embraced by homeowners. It's embraced both, this is an example in 1956, uh, uh, kind of east suburb uh, um, of Los Angeles. Uh, so this is like if you, the equivalent of going on realtor.com and it tells you there's fruit-bearing trees and a two-story Cape Cod home and that it shouldn't be shown to Mexicans in 1956. And it's, of course, embraced in the just absolutely mushrooming suburbs that are happening all over the state, as they are all over the country. In this case, Lakewood, which is a town just south of LA. 17,000 homes go up in the span of two years. This is California's Levittown, 99% white. Sometimes it's underwritten by violence. When new, in particular, black and Mexican-American homeowners would come into new communities, they could face vigilante violence. Uh, LA in 51, San Francisco in 66. It's often tied to status, such that even Willie Mays, the baseball player for the San Francisco Giants, tries to buy a house in San Francisco in 57 and is denied and has to turn to a fair housing group and appeal and pay above the market value. And it's always enforced in the name of community. Never in the name of intolerance or prejudice, but in the name of community. So here we have a notice that community members circulate trying to protect the legal challenge to racial covenants. They actually uh, are overturned by the courts in 49, but this is grassroots organizing to protect these covenants. We have to protect our race restrictions. And it, always around the challenge of what are you doing to protect your community? Okay. And, and last, and they're always with a cultural politic. And, and I hope to kind of expand on this. This is actually a um, flyer from a, around a ballot measure. In the late 40s, California had an enormous housing shortage. There was some interest in taking housing out of the private sector and, and actually launching a large public housing program. And realtors and developers did not want this to happen. And to encourage people to vote against it, this is kind of how they framed it. You'll pay their rent. And so we can see the kind of signifiers of a kind of respectable middle-class couple gazing across the street at them 
and the burden that they'll have to assume in paying their rent. So on the one hand, this is a strictly kind of fiscal question of profit, about who's going to control the housing stock, but it's, it's, it's kind of framed and symbolized entirely in cultural terms. Okay. These, of course, always engender resistance. From the 40s, there's uh, uh, campaigns against restrictive covenants, and in the 60s, it culminates in some direct action. And this is where the realtors shift their focus, and I think there's something to learn about, uh, about uh, from Prop 8. So as they're feeling these challenges, I mean, they'd argued for a long time, even about uh, constitutional amendments to protect the right to have restrictive covenants. They realize that the language has to switch. And in the, in the early 60s, they offer a property owner's bill of rights. And it mentions nothing about people of color. It mentions nothing about property values. It simply reiterates, in this case, the 14th Amendment and all the rights that property owners themselves should be uh, allowed to assume. This is the basis for the proposition about what um, property owners can and can't have. And they very particularly talk about this language of racial tolerance. This is the president of the Realty Association saying, our association is open to all races and religions. We are not a bunch of ogres. Our real estate boards throughout California has many Negro members. We are not anti-anybody. We will sell any property anywhere to anybody. Okay? So a deep, deep disavowal of all of these relations of subordination kind of in the name of personal affect. I'm not anti-anybody. Now, the new black realtors they had brought in in a, in a segregated local, an auxiliary local, right? I mean, so you can uncover it and cover all of these kind of ugly practices. The point is they were not at all afraid to incorporate this language of tolerance. Okay. Here is a, a flyer from this campaign where they're urging voters to get back your rights. And this is, again, the way the subordination becomes kind of reinforced. The rights to get back are, is actually a right to discriminate. That's the only right they're, they're being asked to embrace. And it's a white right to discriminate, right? Black homeowners don't have this right to discriminate. It's, it's a racial right they're urged to embrace. The language is a freedom to rent or sell to whom you choose. It's even talked about as promoting friendly community relations. Californians, and in this case, white Californians, should have freedom of choice. And here I want to talk about then about all the ways that these kind of cultural um, signifiers, these symbols, about security, authority, government, tolerance, choice. I mean, we could go on and on. Rights, right? Family domesticity, community. They're kind of all brought together around this idea of the house. I mean, it's a broad kind of training in intimate cultural politics. It goes far beyond this narrow question of who you can and can't sell your house to. And I bring this up so now that we can just for a moment look at this campaign against Proposition 14 and see all the parallels really with what we saw in Proposition 8. So Pat Brown, this is Jerry Brown's father, is the kind of liberal um, governor at the time. He tells the folks that are, the, the civil rights groups that are challenging these covenants, we're going to take on this election. We know how to talk to the white electorate. Um, we're going we're to assume this. And surprise, surprise, the main way they frame this is about individual affect. Don't legalize hate strictly as a question of tolerance. And the parallels, I mean, as, I, as Prop 8 unfolded, they specifically tell kind of black leaders to stay out of the picture. 
They want no mention. If they find any mention of talk about kind of Jim Crow housing, they immediately get in a panic, and they want to talk only in terms of like, dislike, tolerance, and intolerance. They're thrilled that they come up with this don't legalize hate, and they put this all over billboards. I mean, it's a massive mobilization. And what they start doing is holding um, uh, concerts and bike-a-thons and kind of these celebrations of the tolerant people, talking to each other about how tolerant they are. They don't go outside the kind of main areas in LA and San Francisco, but they have these kind of tolerance festivals. And they congratulate each other and affirm each other in their tolerance. And the thinking is, as soon as we just urge our fellow Californians to be tolerant like us, this problem will go away. You can see just two quick things here. This is the, gov the lieutenant governor saying, if we allow ourselves now in the South with the, with the South and the civil rights struggle, the future of the state is in serious jeopardy. California did not achieve her present wealth and importance by being a symbol of fear and hate. We have no problems here. Everything is fine. Uh, only if we approve this are, are we inviting uh, fear and hate. At the same time, and we see this in the, in the same way in the Prop 8, there's a kind of affirmation and naturalization of the subordination that took place. So this is a typical church flyer urging other kind of white liberal voters to vote against it. And they say, look, economic inequalities over our long history make it impossible for most minority citizens to buy homes of their choice. The right of people to acquire property does not result in widespread use of that right. It will not basically change racial housing patterns. The underlying message was, no Negroes will move in your house. You do not have to worry. Sometimes that was the official language. And this was certainly the underlying language. And these are the anti-Proposition 14 folks. So it's a question of intolerance. And all of those kind of words and things that we see around are indeed natural. So the idea was the voters will be urged to be tolerant, they'll ignore this, and they'll respond. Well, we can see as the campaign unfolds and they get both messages, um, you know, the, the, the kind of realization they came up with was that the anti-14 campaign did not win a single vote. Not a single vote. And Californians were indeed happy to vote for Johnson, celebrate their tolerance, and affirm this right to discriminate. Affirm and naturalize this kind of subordination. After Prop 14, the lesson was we got to do better on the tolerance. The, 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 the mobilization stop, the demonstration stop, and instead we get this, which is a kind of fair housing approach. We have to encounter one another as individuals, right? But all these kind of histories and powers and relations of subordination are off the table, and we have to learn to like each other, and that will solve our housing problem. So in terms of legacies, this measure is actually overturned by the courts, Prop 14. The Rumford Fair Housing Act gets enforced, and indeed there are some there are fair housing protections. But we can see even a figure like Reagan, who on the one hand, as California governor, deeply, deeply denies he's, he's, he has any bias at all. I mean, he, gets, he at one point walks out of a press conference when someone insinuates that he has the slightest racist bone in his body, but also deeply embraces the property owner's right to do with their property as they choose. And there's a legacy in California. So this is a, just an animated map, and we'll get out of this now, that shows segregation of African Americans in Los Angeles and Los Angeles County from 1940 to 1980. So every time it blinks, we move forward 10 years. And you can see in 1940, it'll, it'll cycle back again, the kind of concentration of um, um, 
black neighborhoods in central LA, in, around the central, it'll recycle. As it expands out, such that even after we have fair housing laws, again, these kind of deep relations of subordination continue and segregation. Okay, so let me move forward now. Um, I'm gonna pass this. Tolerance talk and Prop 8's cultural strategy. Um, a lot of the um, kind of uh, organizing against eight came strictly in the language of tolerance and of hate. That if we confront people's bigotry, we're destined to win. We can hold them on the tolerance card. Right? We saw this, some people might have seen this. This is this Jack Black kind of musical uh, put out on YouTube actually after the election. And it kind of parodied the Proposition 8 proponents as these kind of backward thinking, narrow, intolerant, uh, kind of one-dimensional figures who were unable to kind of get with the um, diversity, the cosmopolitan reality that uh, Obama America had become. And I, and I want now to show, a, this is about a four-minute YouTube video um, produced actually by a kind of Mormon techno person. I have all new appreciation for these LDS organizers. Um, um, and I want you to show how they handle the tolerance question. So this is, the title is Proposition 8 Made Simple. It was actually one of the most popular uh, Prop 8 uh, infomercials um, on YouTube, kind of widely uh, viewed. Um. On legislation to define marriage as being between a man and a woman. In the year 2000, Californians voted yes on legislation to define marriage as being between a man and a woman. In May 2008, Four San Francisco judges overturned this legislation, ruling it unconstitutional. Suddenly, same-sex marriage was legal in California. But have the courts gone too far? And is same-sex marriage the right choice for California? On November 4th, Californians will have the chance to make their voices heard once more. This is Proposition 8, in plain English. Proposition 8 is a measure on the November ballot which will amend the California Constitution by adding these 14 words. Only marriage between a man and a woman is valid or recognized in California. A yes vote will reverse the Supreme Court's decision and restore traditional marriage to California. A no vote will affirm the Supreme Court's decision and allow same-sex marriage to continue in California. As with most political issues, there are strong feelings on both sides. Those in favor of the amendment argue that strong families are fundamental to society and legalizing same-sex marriage could have harmful consequences. Those opposed to the amendment argue that same-sex marriage is a right and won't harm anyone. There are also many people in the middle who aren't quite sure what to think. Meet Jan and Tom. Jan and Tom have two children and a dog. They own a minivan. Tom mows his lawn on Saturday. Jan likes to cook. Jan and Tom live next door to Dan and Michael, a same-sex couple. Jan and Tom have been good friends with Dan and Michael for years. When Jan and Tom were on vacation, Dan and Michael watched their dog. When Dan was sick, Jan brought him soup. When they first heard about Proposition 8, Tom and Jan felt torn. On the one hand, they believed in and wanted to teach their children traditional family values. On the other hand, they felt Dan and Michael should be treated fairly and equally, regardless of their lifestyle choice. Tom and Jan wondered, will same-sex marriage affect us and our children? They decided to find out. After a few minutes on the internet, Tom discovered Section 297 of the California Family Code. That's interesting, thought Tom as he read it. 
it appears that same-sex couples like Dan and Michael, who are in a domestic partnership, already have the same legal rights and privileges as married couples. If this isn't about rights and equality, then what is it about? And why is changing the definition of marriage such a big deal? At that very moment, Jan was on the phone with her sister Nancy, who lives in Massachusetts, the only other state in the U.S. to legalize same-sex marriage. Here's what Jan learned. Fact. In 2004, Massachusetts legalized same-sex marriage. Fact. In 2006, a Massachusetts teacher read the story King and King to her second-grade class, which tells the story of a prince marrying a prince. When parents objected, courts ruled that parents had no right to receive advance notice that their children would be taught about gay marriage, nor could they pull their children from class. Fact. In 2006, Catholic Charities ended its adoption work in Massachusetts after more than 100 years of service because the state's anti-discrimination laws required adoption agencies to place children in same-sex homes. Tom was now starting to understand. Changing the definition of marriage was a big deal and could have some very serious consequences. Consequences that would affect not only their children, but also their community. If Proposition 8 were to fail, would their church be required to perform same-sex marriages? What would their children be taught in school? Could anti-discrimination laws force citizens to compromise their values and beliefs in the name of tolerance? Was same-sex marriage really the right choice for California? Tom and Jan decided there was far too much at stake to leave these questions to chance. Tom and Jan are still good friends with Dan and Michael. In fact, they're having a barbecue together right now. You see, being a good neighbor is important. But Tom and Jan have come to an important realization. They can respect Dan and Michael's lifestyle choice without affirming and embracing their lifestyle. Tom and Jan will be voting yes this November on Proposition 8, and we hope you'll do the same. For more information, please visit whatisprop8.com. Just quickly on the, the video is also translated, there's a Spanish version of it, and then a fascinating one called Prop 8 Intolerance, which is like a first-person um, narrative about how a tolerant person can support Prop 8 and kind of taking us through his, his, his process, how he reached this agonizing decision. Okay, so I, I'm going to uh, wrap up here. These are some, um, I, I want to say that we imagine the proponents of Proposition 8 as narrow and one-dimensional, absolutely, absolutely, uh, to our demise, um, such that if uh, our main first and last argument are appeals to tolerance, I want to suggest that um, our, our prospects for success are quite diminished. These are kind of some screen grabs from a youth-oriented website that the Yes on 8 people set up. Their uh, web presence was absolutely amazing. We can imagine all then of these terms and symbols and affects that uh, the, the, both in that spot and the campaign itself mobilize. Again, around security, authority, childhood, schools, um, all brought together. And, and the point is not, it, it's a deeply subordinating vision. It's a dehumanizing vision, but it's a vision. It's a vision of the role that intimate politics might play in public life. It's a vision and articulation of the connection between marriage and household security. It's a subordinating one. It's one kind of ripe with exploitation, ripe with normalizing assumptions, but it's a vision. And it's a way to generate talk about that. It's, it's secured around this idea of marriage, but it's about much more than that. I want to finally say uh, a little bit about Prop 8's political strategy, beyond the ways they kind of talked about representation and symbols, because again, I think we underestimate this absolutely at our demise. 
We think of Prop 8 as essentially, you know, there were some kind of folks on either side, they took to the streets, they held up signs, and, and the measure itself was a plebiscite. Everybody in favor of it say yes, everybody against it say no, and the vote was cast. And that mystifies the deep amount of organizing that kind of underlied this project. This is actually from the church-oriented website of the pro-Prop 8, where they very clearly put up what their uh, campaign strategy was about how to uh, reach to both biblically trained audiences and undecided secular audiences, and how to do both. How they would activate one group and educate another. They offer us the ABCs of protecting marriage, focusing on activist judges who intervened in the popular will, the benefits that domestic partnership already secures, and the vulnerability of children. Right, brought together through the campaign. And while we often call this, and from another perspective, the Christian right, it's in fact a coalition of groups that don't always work together. And if you look at their own presence, you can constantly find them fighting with each other. There's even you know, Mormon websites where they're talking about, are we letting the evangelicals get too much credit for this? Okay? So it's not a one-dimensional thing. It's an organized collaboration. A timeline, um, Richard talked about the uh, large rally in San Diego a timeline of network pastors that brought them together that would culminate in November in this large rally and responsibilities for what everyone had to do. The 848 plan, people, we talked about if you went to California, there's posters everywhere and house signs everywhere. That's because one of the expectations was to give eight people eight house signs to put up. Specific tasks for people to do. They had webinars, conferences, and house parties, including a same-sex marriage affects everyone uh, take-home house party kit, which you could buy online. And to point out that Yes on eight, eight materials are translated into 13 different languages and available instantly in, in, a, in a variety of formats and disseminated. We should talk about the very particular effort to recruit African-American voters in this. The ballot argument was signed by an African-American pastor, identified as such, and a very, very strong effort to target Latino voters, including extensive bilingual outreach. Uh, in the aftermath, um, we're once again playing the intolerance card. The Californians Against Hate website has been set up to target the donors to it to accuse them of intolerance and to kind of bring them back into the fabric. There's boycotts now set up of the leading businesses that supported Prop 8 and uh, marches that do that. And, and I, uh, um, I want to say less about, um, I, I understand the, the political energy that's behind this, but I want to also point out the, the Yes on Aid website has set up their own um, uh, uh, supporters, website called Above the Hate, in which they're rallying support for Mormon and LDS backers of Prop 8 who have been unfairly victimized by same-sex marriage proponents. Okay. We now have the Republican governor of Utah just coming out in the last couple of days saying he's in favor of domestic partnerships. A civil union, civil unions, right. Um, I'm going to argue that the tolerance card is not going to allow us to contend with this. Um, and just to say three things about tolerance. Tolerance, as the, you know, the theorist Wendy Brown says, it preserves this distinction between who's doing the tolerating and who will be tolerated, right? Um, it doesn't, um, it, it has this kind of strange reciprocal thing, which is if I'm going to tolerate you, then you have to tolerate my right to not like you, right? This kind of reciprocity. Um, and 
Tolerance, I mean, actually, exclusions can often happen more effectively in the name of tolerance, right? It's the tolerant state and the tolerant society that claims for itself the right to subordinate. If it were intolerant, it wouldn't have that kind of legitimacy. So claiming tolerance actually gives you some political leverage to practice um, and, and to reinforce inequality. And that's why I think tolerance is, is a kind of profoundly limiting political vision. The road to freedom is certainly not paved with appeals to tolerance. Okay. The last question here, this is where I'm going to just quickly say, um, uh, I think we have to reconceive our politics around this that move us past uh, tolerance. I think we obviously have to practice a kind of, or think about a cultural politics. You know, as I suggested, they talk about bodies, about sex, about intimacy, about, you know, um, kind of pleasure, households, in connection to politics. And I would argue that most progressives have no language to do that. We talk about it as just a legal institution. So we need a cultural politics to do this. And we also need, as, as I've suggested there, an organizing strategy, a way to convene, communicate, and not do, in fact, what the Prop 14 people did was, to, I mean, one person said, having you know, conversations among ourselves, right? We kind of can't do that. And the third I just want to say is, you know, there's obviously examples out here where it's being done. Certainly in New York, Queers for Economic Justice, groups like Fierce, which are demonstrating to us the kind of intimate links between body politics and larger questions. And even, you know, in my uh, campus now at the University of Oregon, the Latino student group Mecha is hosting a national conference, and they're making gender subordination and the trans body the central of this national conference. It's kicking up all kinds of, you know, uh, debate and controversy, but that's kind of exactly what has to happen, right? To kind of take these apart. I wish I could say I indoctrinated them. It was not at all the case. Um, I mean, this really, you know, it's coming to them. So I think that there's obviously kind of movements out there to do this, but um, I want to suggest that it hasn't worked. The kind of pragmatism, narrow focus hasn't worked in 50 years of California politics. It didn't work this time, um, and, um, you know, it, it seems to me that um, we have nothing to lose by trying something else. Thank you. I don't have any slides. <laughs> I don't have any videos, um, but I'm thrilled to be here. Um, we're kind of ready for dinner. Uh, late, so um, I'm going to throw out some different ideas than the ones you've heard um, uh, and try to link some of what, um, what we've all been talking about here, um, but particularly some of what Dan's been talking about, about messaging. Um, and what I want to uh, want us to think about is in our political and our legal projects, we want to win. So we need to think about what are the messages that work. And Dan tells us tolerance doesn't in the political. Um, and certain arguments are winning in the legal context and certain are, certain are losing. But the arguments that we make when we win make the next set of politics possible or foreclose other types of movements and other types of, 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 of ethics. And so tolerance is not winning in the political. It's certainly not winning in the legal either. Um, uh, but we need to think about a longitudinal set of commitments here in terms of what, what the kinds of arguments we're making are, are enabling and foreclosing. So that's some of what I want to talk about now. So I'm going to do a couple of things. One, for a little while, I'm going to be your law professor. I will not call on anyone, although I do have one of my students in the back. So Amanda, if you want, you can raise your hand. Um, uh, there may be another, but that's who I know this. Um, and so I'm going to give you a little bit more of the legal background. Richard gave you some. I'm going to give you a little bit more 
Um, and then I'm going to change, I don't have a hat, but something, glasses or jacket, and be more of a provocateur or a um, commentator on, on where we are. So um, uh, as, as Richard uh, mentioned to you, the marriage cases in, uh, marriage case in California and then Proposition 8 and the litigation going on around Proposition 8 um, uh, has had a long trajectory, and um, uh, uh, Dan's going to take us even further back to the proposition movement in California. Um, but it started with movements for domestic partnership um, that created legal, um, a legal simulacrum, if you will, of, uh, of marriage in domestic partnerships. The material, legal, and financial benefits of marriage are now available to uh, same-sex couples in California through domestic partnerships. So it raises very beautifully in a way, as is the case in Connecticut, where there uh, was a, a same-sex marriage challenge um, and also civil unions. Um, and we may soon see the same thing in New Jersey. It raises the dignity question. It raises the question of what is marriage if not only a bundle of rights, but it serves symbolically as something else. And that ends up figuring um, uh, front and center in the legal strategies um, in ways that um, we're winning in some cases, and California is one of them, um, but we're winning for the wrong reasons. So I want us to end up at a place where we stop talking about dignity. Um, and I'm going to hopefully convince you that that's right. So um, in, in the um, marriage cases, and it was called in Ray marriage cases, is the name of the, of the lawsuit in California, that um, well, was brought in and ultimately a decision was issued in 2008 challenging the statute that had come from Proposition 22 that established as a matter of statutory law and a law that normally would go through the legislature as opposed to a law that is in your constitution of your state, but it was a law that defined marriage as a, of an institution um, populated by one man and one woman and necessarily would exclude um, uh, couples who were of the same sex. I'm going to resist the term opposite sex and instead say different sex um, uh, as the thing that, um, that marriage laws uh, now um, allow. I don't like the setup um, opposite and same sex, but um, antinomous or polar opposites of one another. So in challenging the marriage law in California, there were two principal um, arguments made on behalf of the same sex couples who sought to be married. The first has to do with the fact that marriage is a fundamental right. What's another fundamental right? Reproductive rights, for instance. Fundamental right. The right to raise your children yourself, your own children yourself. And then the law, kind of property approach to, to children. They're mine. I get to do with them up to a certain limit what I want with them. And that is a fundamental right of parenting. Um, so the analogy was made between marriage and, say, reproductive rights. And as you probably know in this area, the marriage cases and the gay rights cases have built a lot on the, the sex-based cases having to do with abortion and other kinds of reproductive rights. So that analogy was made explicitly. Marriage is like the ability to control one's own body, to have an autonomy and a liberty right to control your own body free from state coercion or state intervention. Right? And what, um, uh, what the argument that the court accepted in the California case in saying, yes, marriage is a fundamental right, is that to deny this fundamental right to this group of people on the basis of their not being able to meet the essential criteria of marriage, being one man and one woman, creates, um, denies the equal rights to dignity um, and respect that all people should enjoy 
um, by virtue of their humanity. So this is what we would say um, is an almost a natural law approach to rights. It's something that derives from morality. Not from, it's not a liberal argument about rights, and I'll come back to liberal ar arguments in a moment. Um, but it's, it's a deeply moralistic idea that all humans enjoy some kind of dignity by virtue of their humanity. And this is where international human rights law, by the way, comes from as well. So it doesn't matter where you are, temporally or geographically, we all enjoy these rights. And it's, it's, a, it's an affront to that dignity to deny us access to this fundamental right. Um, now, why is it fundamental? Um, why is this such an important thing, unlike, and I'm going to analogize it later, to voting? Why is this a fundamental right? Uh, the court says, and I'll quote, and I wish I had my slide, but I don't, the most, that marriage is the most socially productive and individually fulfilling relationship that one can enjoy in the course of a lifetime. It ennobles and enriches human life. So we have to valorize the institution such that not being able to participate in it creates a dignity harm, creates a fundamental harm because it is a fundamental right. Now in New York, you know, we lost the marriage case and we lost it for reasons I'll talk about later also. Judith Kaye, who um, uh, is the now stepping down chief judge of the New York Court of Appeals, which is the highest court in New York, in her dissent in the marriage case, defending the right for same-sex couples to get married, had a kind of Barbie and Ken paragraph that she begins her dissent with, in which she says, for most of us, leading a full life includes establishing a family. Indeed, most New Yorkers can look back on, or forward to, their wedding as among the most significant events of their lives. And you know, what pictures go on the piano in the living room? The wedding, right? right? They, like plaintiffs, grew up hoping to find that one person with whom they would share their future, eager to express their mutual lifetime pledge through civil marriage. Solely because of their sexual orientation, however, that is, because of who, who they love, plaintiffs are denied the rights and responsibilities of civil marriage. So there is this, this valorization of marriage that is a necessary first step in recognizing that there is a fundamental right here, the denial of which amounts to a dignity harm that we see in the California case. Uh, we also saw it even worse, unfortunately, in the Connecticut case, and we see it in the dissent in the um, New York case. So um, uh, this idea of marriage being crucial to human adult flourishing for individuals, regardless of whether they're gonna have children or do have children, but also a necessary structure for good families and for raising of children, and that comes up all over these cases as well, renders it a fundamental right. So it's not that we're being excluded from it that renders the law wrong or brings the problem up on the um, constitutional screen, if you will. Um, that's the second kind of argument we see in these cases. The first argument is about fundamental right. So uh, the plaintiffs won on that issue in California. Marriage is a fundamental right, and it's a dignity harm to, to keep us from being able to have access to it. The second argument is the equal protection argument that once the state sets up an institution, no matter whether it is fundamental or actually banal, like a, you know, a state fair, um, although I think state fairs are a lot more fun than marriage in some respects, but um, uh, whatever it is that the state does, it has to do so in ways that doesn't discriminate against particular classes or doesn't discriminate against people in ways that have been prohibited 
um, in, uh, uh, by the, the state's constitution. So um, uh, here, the state was discriminating on the basis of sexual orientation. And as Richard mentioned earlier, um, uh, the court took this as the opportunity to say that discrimination against gay people or lesbians is uh, constitutionally and legally the same as or as bad as discriminating against people on the basis of race or uh, sex. So in order to do that, to, to, make, to differentiate between people based on these prohibited criteria, you have to come up with a really good reason. And the state couldn't come up with a really good reason to do so. so um, sexual orientation is a suspect class, as we call it in the law, um, uh, for the first time in the marriage cases. That's a big deal. It's a really big deal. It's going to have implications well outside of marriage, whether it's housing, employment, public benefits, the whole range of things that states are engaged in. Um, very important. And launches a different politic than does fundamental rights. So, so, this, so the Supreme Court of California issues this opinion. Plaintiffs win on two fronts. And as you know, everybody rushed on down and got married, or a big chunk of people did. And then Prop 8 is put on the ballot to constitutionally erase that case, the, the Supreme Court's case. And we know it's only 14 words. Um, and so before the court right now in the Karen Strauss versus State of California case, this is the case challenging proposition, the legality of Proposition 8. You've got the same court that you had in the same-sex marriage case, but they're asked a very different question. The, um, the, the normative question about whether gay people should be able to marriage, marry is not before the court now. That's already been decided. Whether, whether barring us from the institution of marriage is constitutional. That has been decided in the marriage cases. The question before the court now is, does California have a different constitution? In, in enacting or ratifying or having Prop 8 passed, has it created a new constitution such that prohibiting people of the same sex from marrying doesn't violate that constitution? It violated the old one, but does it violate this new one? And the only question they have to answer, which is a very technical legal question, but everything turns on it, is whether Prop 8 was an amendment, a new thing, to the Constitution or revision of the old one. So is Prop 8 about marriage or is Prop 8 about equality? Because the old Constitution already had stuff about equality in it. The old Constitution didn't have this marriage language in it. That would make it something new. And if you're amending the Constitution, there will, you'll be not be quizzed on this. <laughs> if you're amending the Constitution, you can go through this simple majority proposition process. If you're revising or modifying the old constitution, you have to go through a much more onerous process. You have to get a supermajority in both houses of the state legislature, and then you have to bring the proposition either to the people or to the con a constitutional convention. That's how we amend the US Constitution. The Equal Rights Amendment failed through that process. We make it difficult to amend our founding documents because we don't want them to sort of sway in the wind of the popular sentiment in a particular moment. They are a super commitment of the people to a fundamental set of ideas that constitute the political and the legal system. So California is, for so many reasons, this really wacky place 
where they can willy-nilly um, amend their constitution, as we've seen, with um, uh, whatever the popular, mostly hateful thing of the day is, unfortunately, as we now know. Um, so that's the legal question before the court in the Prop 8 case. Is this an amendment or is it a revision? And if it's a revision in which they are, the, the Prop 8 made um, something different out of the idea of equality and fundamental rights than that which existed at the time that they decided the marriage cases, then Prop 8 is invalid. If it's an amendment and it's just about marriage, then Prop 8 is valid. And your guess is as good as any of the legal experts about how this is going to come out. There are cases on both sides, um, but there's no controlling case really um, on how it's going to come out. So it's a complicated problem. Um, the argument, the oral argument on the case is March 5th um, at 3 o'clock, oh, no, from noon to 3 our time. You can stream the argument on the web if you want. If you want to know how to do it, you can go to the blog for my program, the, just put in gender and sexuality law blog into Google or whatever, and you'll get there and there's a link for the, for the um, argument. We're going to stream it in the lobby of the law school and then make the dean sit in the chair, tie him to the chair and make him watch. Um, uh, but uh, it should be interesting. It should be super interesting. Over 50 different groups submitted amicus briefs, friends of the court briefs, briefs saying, hey court, this is my idea or my view on uh, how this case should come out. Some of them were union, some of them were um, the usual advocacy organizations, National Organization for Women, ACLU, the kind of people you'd expect would have a view, the religious folks on the right, individual priests, all these random like three people who got together and decided to write a brief, this is my view on it. Um, <laughs> random groups of professors from what I can tell decided to write the brief. California has a very um, democratic idea of what it means to have an opinion that's worthy of the Supreme Court um, uh, entertaining it. Um, you know, the San Francisco Chamber of Commerce, this is economically an important issue too because it can increase costs for businesses um, to have a larger, larger group of people get married. So, um, you know, if you're interested, obviously you are since you're here, um, uh, you can watch the argument streamed on the web. You can learn a lot um, that way. So that's just the the law 101 on what's Prop 8 and what's the litigation around Prop 8. Um, I would say the court will decide the opinion, uh, decide the case, I would it, probably in a couple of months. Um, they, they know that this needs to be decided quickly. And not only are they deciding whether this is an amendment or a revision, but they're also trying to decide, they have to decide what to do with the folks who got married between November 4th and the date that, um, uh, no, between the day of the marriage cases and November 4th when marriage was no longer legal. So um, did, are those marriages revoked? Are they, are they legal in some other sort of way? So uh, is Prop 8 retroactive, essentially? So what else is pending in the legal landscape? Um, Iowa, uh, the Iowa Supreme Court uh, has a case that's been briefed and argued in front of it, challenging their uh, law that uh, barred same-sex couples from access to marriage licenses. Lambda Legal is the um, lead counsel there, and they're making both equal protection and fundamental right arguments there. These are basically the, the stock arguments we're seeing in these cases, and the most, most um, uh, successful ones. Um, I watched the oral argument on uh, streamed by the Iowa Supreme Court. Um, they had a heterosexual man who has argued many, many cases before the court um, argued the case. Uh, he's standing up there with a very prominent wedding ring, 
and made it quite clear to the court that he was heterosexual. He talked about his wife and children, and it was almost like that little animated movie, but from the other side. Um, uh, and at one point, he's making the argument, the dignity argument, about how important it is that same-sex couples be able to marry. And he says to the court, little, I think her name was Lisa, but I won't swear to her. Little Lisa is sitting there. <laughs> Lisa's mothers can't marry. When, the, her, when she and her mothers went to the first day of nursery school, she was told that, that she can't enroll in the nursery school because her parents are not married. Um, uh, because they live in an uh, uh, unsavory relationship. We will only accept children from married um, uh, families, families where the parents are marriage, married. Little Lisa feels really bad about this. If Lisa's parents could get married, she wouldn't have to suffer the shame of her parents living outside of the institution of marriage, which they are forced to do. And, you know, little Lisa's in there. And uh, that is just an awful argument. <laughs> that is an awful argument. You know, the base care center should take the kid regardless of the marital status of her parents. But this is the argument that our advocates, Lambda Legal and others, are making um, on our behalf in these cases. So. Um, that's the argument from dignity, and it's the argument that concerns me enormously. So Connecticut, in the October of last year, issued an opinion, the Supreme Court there, saying that same-sex couples in Connecticut had a right to access to the institution of marriage. Um, uh, Lambda was the lead counsel there. It's a similar case to the one in California because uh, there, was, uh, there were civil unions in Connecticut that had been um, created uh, legislatively. Um, not in response to a lawsuit, but the governor uh, undertook it, in, uh, initiated it on her own, um, and it raised front and center there that what, what is the dignity harm between civil unions and marriage? It's a separate but equal question, right? You're being treated separately, but are you being treated equally? And that's exactly how the Connecticut court um, framed the question, um, and uh, the court favorably cited in a footnote an argument that Lambda made in its brief that said that any married couple reasonably would feel that they had lost something precious and irreplaceable if the government were to tell them that they no longer were married and instead were civil unions. Marriage must be something more than the bundle of rights and responsibilities that it entails. There's something more that makes civil unions and marriages not um, separate, certainly, but not equal. And by flipping the paradigm and saying that if we took it away from heterosexual people, they would feel like they lost something. Um, that's how we know that there's a dignity harm. There's something else here that that that's, that gay people are being or same-sex couples are being denied. Um, that argument, not surprisingly, I find fairly troubling. Okay, last law lawsuit you should know about is in New York. Uh, as I mentioned, we lost the case in New York. Um, why did we lose the case? Well, the New York adopted an argument that. Um, the Indiana Supreme Court used that we all thought was a joke, um, but apparently it's not. Um, and the argument there is that marriage is a good thing for children of heterosexual couples because heterosexual people can get pregnant by accident. And homosexual couples have to work really hard at it. <laughs> they have to go through home visits in order to adopt. They have to find a surrogate. 
they have to do all that stuff that makes them responsible reproducers. So the responsibility and discipline that comes from the institution of marriage isn't something they need. And incidentally, something their children need. The children of heterosexual people could be conceived by accident. It's unwanted or irresponsible reproduction. And marriage is a good thing because it makes them more responsible. <laughs> so we get punished, <laughs> basically, denied a right because we're um, responsible by virtue of biology. First of all, how gay people have children exceeds the ways in which they describe um, how we get pregnant and how we have babies. Um, and I don't need to get into that right now, but surely you can imagine that there are all sorts of irresponsible things I could do when we leave here this evening um, to produce a child, which, given my age, it would be an unlikely event, but, <laughs> you know, whatever. Um, so, uh, so that's the argument in New York, that Judith Kay, you know, had her, all of us were, as children, looking forward to the day when we would be donned in our, our wedding gowns um, some of the men in the room certainly shared that fantasy as well, I'm sure, but that's not what she was talking about. Okay, so these cases, did they ineluctably follow from Lawrence? Are the arguments that we're seeing in these cases the necessary, necessarily entailed from the arguments that were made in Lawrence? Lawrence was a Supreme Court decision that said you can't criminalize same-sex sex, that, that found sodomy laws unconstitutional. And it said sodomy laws were unconstitutional where the conduct was between consenting adults in private, between people who were consenting were adults and what took place in private. So it's not all sodomy, it's not all same-sex sex. It is domesticated sex of a certain sort. The court assumed that the two men involved there were in a long-term relationship like a marriage. In fact, they were just tricking. But that wasn't something that Justice Kennedy wanted to acknowledge in the opinion. But what's important about Lawrence is it changed the terms of the debate that are available in these cases now. Bowers, which was the case that Lawrence overruled, said that it's okay constitutionally to criminalize sodomy because we have had a tradition of doing so. It is public morality to dislike gay people, to judge gay people, and to criminalize that sex. In time immemorial, it has been the tradition. He starts with Leviticus and works from there. Um, literally, he does in the opinion. Um, Justice Scalia does. Uh, Justice White does, sorry. In finding that it's constitutional to criminalize um, same-sex sex. What Lawrence does is says you can't make those arguments anymore. You cannot justify the treatment of a people um, uh, through the criminal laws or otherwise in a, in a um, uh, subordinating way by a turn to public morality and tradition. You have to make a liberal argument. And the liberal argument has to be something like the harm principle. So long as no one's getting hurt, you can decide in the privacy of your own life how to, what the meaning of life is, what the important things in your life are. Abortion's like that as well. And this is borrowing ideas from abortion. You can either do it or not do it, but it's your, it's your decision, and the state can't sanction that private morality. So after Lawrence, arguments from tradition and morality of a certain sort are no longer available. We can only make liberal arguments. 
and the kind of arguments that someone like Scalia, Justice Scalia makes are not available um, constitutionally anymore. Um, so that's why consenting adults in private are important because that that's, doesn't violate the harm principle. We're not doing it in front of people who don't want to see it. It's just not sports sex of some kind. There's no, no children involved. Right. So what we see now in these marriage cases is that the plaintiffs are making arguments based on history and tradition. And the states are defending these statutes based on liberal arguments and the harm principle. Children will be hurt. But the plaintiffs are making, and that's largely where the cases now are getting decided, is about the interests of children. It's better for kids, like in New York, that their parents, only same-sex, uh, or excuse me, only different-sex couples be able to marry. So uh, it's not that the arguments of tradition and history are no longer available. They're just not available to the state. The plaintiffs are making these arguments in the name of dignity, in the name of fundamental rights. So who was making the argument for morality is flipped, and who is deploying the harm principle has flipped um, uh, 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 as we watch this trajectory. So this is why I think um, this, this set of questions about which arguments have traction, which ones will get you to win in these cases, and which ones animate a certain kind of politics that are troubling um, need to be something we're always thinking about. There are ethics of how we lawyer, and there are ethics of how we do political organizing that are not only um, um, consequentialist in nature. Um, so, how am I doing? Can I have a couple more comments? Or, yeah, I mean, it's, as I said, it's late. So, um, so, I am actually not hugely troubled by the equal protection argument. Part of why they don't let same-sex couples marry is because they hate us. Uh, not because they care so much about kids. Um, and uh, to the extent that an anti-discrimination or an equal protection argument is about, look, if you set the thing up, you can't exclude people on the basis of a protected status. I'm okay with that argument. And it doesn't mean you have to get married, it just means that those who want to can't be barred because of some identity characteristic that we, we feel has been elevated to the point of uh, sufficient analogy to race in this society. So what I'm more troubled about is the matrimoniality, the valorization of matrimoniality in the cases. It's set up as a kind of, there's a teleology. You know, maybe you'll date a little bit when you're younger, but eventually you'll settle down and find your person. Uh, marry that person and have a mature and fulfilling adult life. That I don't want us to be arguing in order to win the cases, and what certainly we don't want to argue in order to win in, in the political sphere. So is there another way to argue a fundamental right? Are all we left, we're left with is the equality argument? Well, I think there is. And that's why the analogy to voting is so interesting. <laughs> Believe it or not, you do not have a constitutional right to vote. When we think of primaries, in New York, we all go and vote the regular way, but in lots of other places, they have caucuses. They do things that don't look hugely democratic. Why isn't that unconstitutional? Because you don't have a right to vote. So the states, many states set up a one person, one vote kind of process in whether it's a primary or a general election, but it's not constitutionally required. And we, we hold it as a fundamental part of our political process for political reasons, not for constitutional reasons. So we could say that voting is fundamental in some sense, but not the way that they make the argument, but instead say, well, maybe there's something about relationships of a certain sort, but why do they have to be organized in marriage? 
So to think of marriage as more like voting than like the way that the, um, the plaintiffs in these cases have been setting up allows us to make a new argument which you don't see in these cases, which is about disestablishing marriage altogether. Because unfortunately, one of the payoffs, if you will, or one of the results of these cases is that they have made it much more difficult to disestablish marriage at the same time that we have heterosexualized marriage. You know, very few of these cases have we won. We have lost more, and almost every state, or the vast majority of states, have passed laws out of backlash, either amended their constitutions or passed laws uh, uh, through the, the old-fashioned legislative way, uh, declaring marriage to be uh, a union between a man and a woman. So the, the result of the losing political campaign and the losing legal campaign has been to heteronormatize, if you will, or heterosexualize marriage more than it was before when we began the work. So, all right, let's take stock. Let's back up. Maybe our strategy should now be to disestablish the institution of marriage. If that's how they want it, let's get rid of it. I mean, whatever, apart from your critique of whether marriage is a good thing at all, it's a worse thing now than when we started these campaigns. <laughs> well, I mean, it is. <laughs> but unfortunately, the legal strategies have made that more difficult by establishing marriage as a fundamental right in the way that they have. In California and Connecticut, California's a little less clear, but Connecticut is absolutely clear, and I think Iowa, if we win, and I don't know whether we will, and I'm actually not even sure what winning means anymore, but if the plaintiffs win, right, we will not be able to launch that campaign because you can't take it away. It is a fundamental right. Remember, heterosexual people who are married were told that they were no longer married and that they could only be civil unions. They would feel like they had lost something precious. Well, you, that means that it's something that the state must provide. Um, so uh, I, I'm, I, I think that this is where our politics should go now in the direction of disestablishing um, uh, the end of the, excuse me, the, uh, the institution of marriage. Um, but it may be hard to do in, uh, in all the states uh, where these uh, lawsuits have been brought. Um, one last thought, which is um, about Lawrence also. Very often, the analogy to Loving versus Virginia is made. That, 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 that gay people are now longing for their loving moment. In the 1970s, uh, up until the Loving versus Virginia decision, it was criminal in many states for people of different races to marry one another. Loving versus Virginia said, no, there's a fundamental right to marry, um, but they said it differently than that's said in these, these gay cases today, um, and it's unconstitutional to condition your capacity to marry on the, on the race of either you or the person you're, you're, you're seeking to marry. That's what we want now, is our loving moment. But that's wrong. It's a logical mistake. When Mildred and Richard Loving, um, the day before the Loving decision, uh, were criminals, and then the day after the Loving decision, they were married. What Lawrence did in decriminalizing sodomy is on day one, we were criminals, and on day two, we weren't criminals. We weren't automatically conscripted into some other legal regulatory regime the way that the Lovings were, and that was the point of the lawsuit, was to, to, to trade criminalization for legalization. Right. 
But that's not what Lawrence did. So what is the politics that the Lawrence decision enables? Is it necessarily marriage? Or is there something in between decriminalization and legal recognition? Is there a space in between being a criminal and being a spouse? Between being regulated by the criminal laws and being regulated by the civil laws? And the way I like to think of it is that the people in California, in a sense, um, their, their file was taken from the district attorney's office down to the marriage license bureau. And those of us who headed for the door found the door locked. We couldn't <laughs> leave, right? That's some of the way that the politics are being set up now. Is that the only way to know that we're really free is for us to marry? Well, um, uh, we've lost a queer politics of this because the queer politics wants to think about that space in between being criminal and being regulated by the civil laws. What are the possibilities that lie there for the kinds of affiliation that we might long for, that we might explore, that we might be harmed by? I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting space. Is there a space for sexuality outside of the pickets of law? And what the same-sex marriage movement has done is collapse the space between criminalization and marriage and say that the one necessarily entails the other. We want our loving moment, but the analogy to loving is wrong legally, and I think it's wrong politically. Thanks. I'm going to change the tone a little bit. Um, and uh, uh, while Richard's helping me find this YouTube ad, and then I'm going to talk about Utah. Hi, we're from 9and10.org. And we want to talk to you about gay marriage. Lightning rod topic, we know. So before you start yelling at us... Listen to what we have to say. We understand the idea of gay people getting married... ...is upsetting. And it isn't that you don't like gays. They're funny people. Great designers. Actors. Hairdressers. That's a sex, isn't it? Gotta be. That penis in the anus thing. Dudes blowing dudes. Yucky. Really yucky. You need them to stop doing that. In what better way? Than to let them marry. Give them a family. Joint debt. Tie them down. With debt. <laughs> yeah, with debt. <laughs> Nothing kinky. Let them get married. And they'll be lucky if they're having sex once a month. And the longer they stay together... The worse it'll be. <laughs> so allow gay marriage. And ban gay divorce instead. That'll teach them. So um, the point, the, the point that I want to, that I want to make is that in the in the in the the, the, the discussion in the United States um, about same-sex marriage, the, it's been polarized pro-con: should same-sex couples be admitted to marriage as it stands or not? And that have been strictly the terms of the debate. There's been almost no discussion, or it's very marginalized discussion, about you know the institution of marriage, what it is historically, what it has been, how it might be altered or eliminated, as uh, Catherine was just suggesting. Um, there's been a very little discussion about, well, what is marriage, and, and how, if, 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 if it's noxious, what can we do to alter it? Instead, it's simply been in or out, um, in or out of marriage. And all of these other statuses that have been innovated 
um, in the time period when same-sex couples haven't been admitted to marriage are just being reinterpreted or being interpreted as steps on the way to the real equality, the real um, freedom, which is marriage. Um, with marriage standing in at this point in time, often my students come in and to them the entire subject of gay rights is summarized by you know, the right to marriage without any thought at all about really the history of marriage. So, you know, those of us who are either feminist or, or queer historians and activists from uh, uh, a number of years ago who were active decades ago, there was much discussion about what, you know, what is marriage? Well, um, it's an institution of property. It's an institution of the state. Um, it has to do with the regulation of birthright citizenship. It's how you discover whether people, how people are allowed to be citizens or not, is depending on whether their parents are married. It's the way property has been transmitted. It, you know, it has a, 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 a history um, uh, in terms of its relationship to the family, private property, and the state. Um, and it's, it, it's a different institution globally and over time. It's changed enormously. Um, and you know, looking at the way in which um, it's been uh, contested or um, imposed over time, there's a very strong uh, history, his, the history of imperialism is rife with the imposition of marriage on populations who don't want it, right? Like Europeans coming to the Americas and forcing a, a, an inst a, their version of an institution of marriage on a population um, that was resistant to it. And, um, and, and uh, justifying that in, in moral language and in the, in the language of religion but being motivated about the organization of property, right? Trying to impose private property rather than communal ownership, trying to uh, impose certain uh, uh, relations of gender and generation that had to do with uh, certain with with the particular ideas about the political. So the language might have been moral, and the language might have been religious, but the motivations were fundamentally economic and political, and. You know, in our social movements, you know, 10 and 20 years ago, we used to know that. And somehow, in this discussion, and, and now at this moment, that is no longer uh, anywhere usually found in the discussion. Um, and, uh, you know, at this particular moment in time, uh, marriage is, uh, a, a, a same-sex marriage isn't the only way that marriage has entered into the national debate. The imposition of marriage or the encouragement to marriage to marriage within uh, welfare, within welfare reform and welfare policy is also a, a, a moment when a language about the importance of marriage has been very important and in which the imposition on, of marriage on uh, resistant uh, single parents, mostly women, has been you know, uh, an object of public policy. Um, and the two discussions about welfare and the imposition of marriage in welfare um, and the spending of money in public policy there, and its connection to the debate over same-sex marriage, that, I mean, there has been very little connection made um, in terms of what the logics are, why these issues are coming up at the same time historically and, and in this location. Um, and, you know, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to make the, the, the elaborated argument um, that I have elsewhere about how, how marriage is functioning economically, that um, uh, up until we're now in a post-neoliberal moment, I don't know exactly what this new moment is going to be yet, but up until we could say we were in some way post-neoliberal, um, the uh, a marriage was being uh, promoted in part as an institution of privatization, right? Of, of privatizing the uh, functions of social care and social welfare. Instead of taking care of children, 
collectively or taking care of having pensions and good health care. This should be taken care of in the private household, and marriage was the right institution for that. That's very explicit in the welfare reform debates, but it's right there, for instance, in the Massachusetts marriage decision as well, in the Goodridge decision, where the judge is saying, well, one of the reasons it's good to have same-sex marriage is to keep single parents and dependent children off the public dole. That's one of the reasons it's a good thing. So it's in there in the same-sex marriage, in the legal decisions, often the courts do not obfuscate some of the logics behind the call to marriage. But so Richard and I were a part of an organization, and I think actually Kathy and you have signed this too, like the Beyond Marriage Statement, which is beyondmarriage.org, which you can find on the internet, which is an argument to diversify and democratize partnership and household recognition, rather than argue for a one-size-fits-all marriage, and to allow non-conjugal partnerships to get recognition and medical decision rights and tax rights and so forth as well, and to decenter marriage by, well, which is a strategy that's slightly different than disestablishment, though it has similar motivation, is to decenter marriage by making many other forms of partnership recognition available, and perhaps even a basic separation of church and state, confining the word marriage to private ceremonies and context, and having whatever kinds of recognitions are used for other kinds of domestic partnership, reciprocal beneficiary, civil union, using other names and having marriage be pushed to the side. That's the advocacy, that's what the Beyond Marriage Statement advocates, is decentering marriage by pluralizing forms of partnership, democratizing and diversifying them. But right now, in this explosion of energy post-Proposition 8, it seems it could go in a couple of different directions. It might be possible to mobilize all of this energy to really intervene in public discussions of what marriage policy ought to be, especially in a moment of economic crisis, where people's material needs, access to health care, access to pensions, are so salient that it's a moment of when it might be possible to argue to broaden the ways in which we can take care of each other through recognitions of our actual dependency relations, rather than through this one sort of sanctified form. So it might be actually a really good moment to mobilize this other kind of argument. On the other hand, it might be a moment when there's a complete pulling together of the motivation to do one thing and one thing only, spend $50 million in California fighting to just fighting over the word marriage as it applies to the partnership recognition that already exists in California. So I think it's an important moment, like which direction there's a possibility. It seems almost unstoppable, the push in the direction of all of the energy and resources of all these new activists that post-Prop 8 has brought, of pushing it all towards California, right, the next campaign in California, and making in or out over marriage in a state where there are no real material stakes to just put everyone's energy there, or to 
um, disperse and in some way come up with a set of arguments about how to provide more material benefits and recognitions to more people um, in as diverse and democratic a form as possible. Um, and uh, the thing that's really interesting to me, the reason I want to talk about Utah, um, I spent the fall semester there, um, and aside from beginning to understand the, um, uh, the, uh, the, the joys of plural marriage from the second wife position, I, um, <laughs> I also was very interested in seeing um, uh, uh, what was going on there, because Utah is a very conservative state with a very big, the highest margins to George Bush in, in, in the 2004 election, um, very conservative legislature. It's the site of the LDS church is right there. Um, and it has a DOMA, it has the kind of DOMA that restricts not only marriage, but marriage-like recognitions for same-sex couples. Um, but right right there in, in Utah, also Salt Lake City, which is so progressive, it's, it's almost to the left of Berkeley. It's, I, it's, there's a very, very strong progressive queer politics in Salt Lake City, um, and Salt Lake City in general, um, in terms of green politics and disability access and you know all kinds of things, a very, very progressive center in the middle of an incredibly conservative state. Um, and in the wake of, um, in the wake of, the, uh, of Proposition 8, um, folks in Salt Lake City and then in Utah generally were um, strongly uh, mobilized and reacted because of the role of the LDS Church. Um, and that's another topic. I mean, the LDS Church was probably less important than the, than the evangelical churches, but nonetheless, it has this enormous kind of symbolic importance, especially in Utah, the, the role of the LDS Church in, in anti-gay politics of all kinds. Um, and it's been, you know, crucial there for such a long time. Um, but it's, it's interestingly odd, and I think Utah really illustrates this, that states with domas, that, that prevent marriage equality campaigns from having any, being able to mobilize in that state. You, you, it's, it's prevented by law, there's no point. You would have to overturn the constitutional amendment um, in order to uh, mobilize a, a marriage campaign. So that's off the table. Um, in the states with DOMAs, and um, it's, it's sometimes because the marriage equality strategies are blocked, um, it can uh, produce some really creative alternatives with broader progressive impact than a marriage equality campaign. Um, I mean, this was the case, I think, in, in Arizona in 2004, which was the only state to overturn, uh, to, uh, to overturn, to vote not against a DOMA, to vote against a DOMA in Arizona. Um, and, uh, and, um, and they organized around preserving domestic partnership rather than around uh, same-sex marriage. But Utah, Utah's Amendments 3, um, uh, uh, has um, blocked marriage there. So what they've come up with is something called the Common Ground Initiative. Um, and, but this is in the wake first of the really strong um, reaction against Prop 8, which mobilized street protests, really angry street protests of a kind that Salt, even Salt Lake City was not really accustomed to. Um, and I want to get, show you a couple of short video clips about that. Yeah, so this is just a little clip of the protests at the, at the temple um, in Utah, in Salt Lake City. 
test shut down several streets in Salt Lake City tonight. That's right. The streets all around Temple Square were closed because of the rally. Christina Flores is live in Salt Lake City. And Christina, were Salt Lake City police prepared for this kind of turnout? Yes, in fact, they were. They knew about this yesterday. They had a briefing about it today. This area where I'm standing here was actually jam-packed with not only cars, but also with people. And given the size of this protest overall, it was pretty peaceful. All the police told me that there was one arrest for aggravated assault. That's because a driver here got into it with police. But let me show you what this looked like from the sky. It was quite a sight. The crowd much bigger than expected. Again, this is a view from Sky 2. Police decided to shut down some of the streets as protesters made their way around the block that is Temple Square and the LDS Church headquarters. Mostly, they were concerned about the crowd, protesters staying out of the way of cars and vice versa. Uh, the organizer of the event, I spoke with him yesterday, he expected about a thousand people, but tonight say police, police say the crowd was much bigger than that. You know, we don't do official counts, but I'd say as little as 2,000, maybe as many as 5,000 people when they first started marching around the street. We have 10 motors that we dedicated to this tonight, 10 guys on motorcycles. And we had extra staff and resources on standby that we brought in as needed just to deal with crowd control and protecting the protesters on their route and uh, dealing with motorists that may have not expected to encounter such a protest. So again, police learned about this protest yesterday. The organizer of the event went to the city and took out what's called a spontaneous permit. So they didn't know about this. They had some time to plan for it earlier today. But it is clear, Mark and Shauna, that this crowd, the turnout here tonight, much bigger than expected. Again, overall very peaceful. And as you can see, the streets back in order. All streets here open, all back to normal. Back to you. All right, Christina Flores on Temple Square as well tonight in our team report. Thank you very much, Christina. So, in, in, you know, this a tremendous amount of energy circulated all around um, through, through Salt Lake City and outward. There were like many people who'd never been active before who were looking for what are we going to do, and um, uh, and a number of things came out of that. And one of that was the the mainstream organization in Utah, which is called um, Equality Utah, um, and it's an organization that probably would have gone to the, the marriage, you know, pro-marriage inclusion route if that had been available. But since it wasn't available, they came up with something instead called the Common Ground Initiative, which was an attempt to take the LDS Church's claim that they weren't anti-gay and that they favored basic equality, just not, not marriage, to take it at face value. Um, you know, uh, it, it's uh, knowing the church would ultimately reject it, but trying to play a rhetorical game with that and saying the church supports all of these equality rights, they just oppose marriage, so they will, of course, support these six bills that we are submitting to the state legislature asking for um, bills on the subject of health care, housing, employment, wrongful death, adult joint support, which is sort of the version of domestic partnership, and, um, and one to take away the part of Amendment 3 that uh, prohibits marriage-like relations. Um, so there's six pieces of legislation asking for um, uh, benefits on, on, on those, in those six areas, um, uh, all of which you could find church language saying that they were perfectly in favor of. Um, and uh, uh, the thing that was really um, uh, amazing about it was that um, on the one hand, you know, three of these, of the six, cover adult partnerships, non-conjugal as well as conjugal. 
So the, help, the right to include someone on health care, it could be any adult designee. The um, housing, I mean, housing and employment is, is same-sex, is anti-discrimination based on sexual orientation. The wrongful death, the right to sue in the case of a wrongful death was if you established an, an, a, a relation of economic dependence, you could sue on uh, the, the basis of wrongful death. The adult joint support, which allows for um, uh, inheritance, insurance, and housing, um, it, they sort of are like golden girls, you know, uh, uh, provisions in that they allow, um, well, they don't allow groups, but they, they do allow adult designees and so forth. Um, so three of the six really would provide some kinds of, of rights and recognitions, recognition to um, a, adult partnerships, uh, regardless of whether they were understood to be or, or believed to be sexual or not. Um, and, uh, and, and would broadly include without, re without regard to straight or gay and, and all of that. So the, the material benefits that would be extended by this would be really substantial to large portions of the population, many of whom do not live in marital households. Um, and um, the other thing that was really interesting about this campaign is that rhetorically, they had to say that this was not marriage. And so they were uh, put in the position of arguing over and over again that here are all of these things that marriage rights would not cover, that these things do. Like marriage wouldn't get you equal housing and equal employment. Marriage isn't going to get you, you know, isn't going to get you um, a, a, a lot of the sort of substantive material things that were included here. So you, you would see these Equality Utah uh, are saying if you're kicked out of your house, if you're fired from your job, marriage is not going to help you. Um, and you know, making arguments about the limits, the narrowness of the marriage claim in a way that decentered it rhetorically from its symbolic center as representative of all of all gay rights, all 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 LGBT rights. Um, so it both expanded it to include all kinds of partnerships and rhetorically uh, decentered um, the. Uh, uh, um, rhetorically decentered marriage as being the one thing that will finally set us free. Um, so that, in the case of Equality Utah, that was conditioned by the strategic situation that they're in. But in addition, um, the Equality Utah and the Pride Center held a big, uh, uh, a big town hall meeting at which, you know, which was mobbed, and people were lined up at the mics forever and arguing that marriage should not be the priority, that the priority should be inclusion based on race and transgender folks, that we should be allying with social justice movements, we should be appearing at the immigration uh, rallies, why would they support us when we don't support them? And that was really, uh, you know, a lineup. Uh, the Utah Pride Center's survey about ranking issues, um, uh, people were just sort of anonymously on their website could rank the importance of various issues. Marriage came out near the bottom in terms of where people were ranking. So that was partly a combination of the fact that marriage is off the table anyway in Utah and also a function of a kind of progressive politics that sees, you know, alliance politics and the fight for, um, uh, uh, for uh, a, you know, a broader vision of social justice um, being really more important to the future of queer politics than the organization around this one um, one right. So it's 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 a kind of a, a, you know a funny sort of lens of what's possible post Proposition Eight, 
and it happens to be conditioned by the limitations in these DOMA states, but it does illustrate the possibility rhetorically and in organizing terms of ways to think otherwise about how to argue for um, really materially consequential rights and recognitions for the most number of people possible, how to get the state out of the business of regulating sexuality and tying it some way to, uh, to partnership recognition, um, and to create a kind of energizing vision um, that perhaps could be a little more mobile, could sustain the kind of post-Prop 8 mobilizing energy um, uh, you know, in this moment of economic downturn when um, the material questions are so to the forefront and when the energy is out there um, rather than just fundraising for a sort of you know, uh, um, no-bid contract media campaign for uh, 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 the marriage, the, the word marriage in the state of California.